Merry Christmas. Hey, turn to Hebrews chapter 2. <clears throat> We're going to wrap up our series, Hebrews chapter 2. Our series is Four Reasons for Christmas, and we are on our fourth reason, Hebrews chapter 2. And as you're doing that, let me just kind of make some introductory comments. Um, first of all, uh, grab your bulletin, and, and there's a place to take notes. On the right side, you'll notice at the bottom uh, a couple things. First of all, work cited. Uh, that's just some great resources from the book of Hebrews if you're interested in digging in a little bit more. Grab some of those resources. I want to add one particular resource or particular scholar that's helped me uh, with this particular sermon, and his name is Michael Kruger, so I encourage you to, to check out his work as well. Hebrews chapter 2, now starting in verse 17. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 17, hear God's word. Therefore, he, of course this is Jesus, had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God, to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered when he, has, when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. And this is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. This passage in its context pushes us to ask a question. Here's the question. What do we put our confidence in? I'm not talking about the nice Christian answer. We all know the nice Christian Sunday school answer is Jesus. I'm talking about the everyday reality of your life and mine. What are you, what am I putting our confidence in today and tomorrow? In April of 1912, thousands of people put their confidence in the RMS Titanic. It had the best technologies. It was crafted in such a way that even in crisis, it could survive. It was dubbed the unsinkable ship. Thousands were convinced of this so-called fact, but it, of course, as you know, sunk. Friends, can you imagine treading water, lying on some scrap wood, watching the unsinkable ship that held you secure now finally sink. Have you ever put your confidence in something? Maybe it's a person or an idea or an institution, only to find it was a complete farce? It's deeply unsettling, isn't it? You can think of my friend Rich, who in his 60s was probably the healthiest 60-year-old I knew. He's a friend out in Boston. And he would ride his bike for miles every single day. And he was this thin guy, really, you know, just in shape and a wonderful guy. And one day on one of his bike rides, he was, you know, on mile 10 or 11, and he suddenly has this massive heart attack. So many of us had put our confidence in his health. That's what we do, right? We put our confidence in all kinds of things, whether it's our health or our resources and our wealth, or maybe it's our vocational capacities or our relational skills or personal charm, or maybe it's our academic abilities. But friends, all of that can quickly change, can't it? Those things can quickly fade, can't they? So what can we put our confidence in that will be something that actually lasts something that's firm and secure. Remember, the writer of Hebrews is writing to this small, beleaguered, persecuted church filled with mostly Jews. 
and they're feeling the pressure to go back to Judaism, to save face, to avoid pain and even death. And so this little church needs a solid anchor. They need to know why Jesus is better, why his incarnation and subsequent salvation is better for them, why their confidence should rest in Jesus and not their rickety Jewish foundation of works righteousness. They need this new, unshakable confidence in Jesus. So the writer is telling this little church all throughout this chapter, really all throughout this letter, listen, don't get rattled by what's happening around you. Don't put your confidence in yourself. Don't put your confidence in your religious works or your spiritual pedigree. Those things are flimsy and they will fail you. Put your confidence in God's work in Christ. In particular, his priestly work. So the series, we've talked about four reasons for, for Christmas. Why did Jesus come? First reason was to give us back our humanity. Second reason was to make us his children. And then finally, last week, we looked at defeating the devil and death. Here's the fourth reason, and you'll see this is the main point of this passage. Here it is. The Son of God had to be like us in every way in order to become our merciful and faithful high priest. The Son of God had to be like us in every way in order to become our merciful and faithful high priest. So let's explore this a little together. What, you know, what sort of priest do we have in Jesus? Let me give you three descriptions. Here's the first one. In Jesus, we have a priestly mediator. In Jesus, we have a priestly mediator. Look at verse 17 one more time. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way. That phrase is so important, in every way. The point, of course, is that Jesus was a real human being. He's not simulated. He's not AI generated. He experienced the life of a real human being. According to this passage, why? Well, so he can be our high priest. This is all rooted, of course, in the Old Testament system of priest and sacrifice. What did the high priest do? Hebrews chapter 5 verse 1 is really helpful. It gives us a single sentence definition of what a high priest does. Listen to Hebrews 5 1. Every high priest is taken from among men. So it needs to be a human from Israel in the case of the Old Testament people of God. Then it says appointed in matters pertaining to God for the people. So this high priest needs to be a mediator, a go-between, a go-between between, of course, God and God's people. And what does the high priest do? He offers both gifts and sacrifices for sins. In other words, for the priest to do that kind of work, he must come from the people. He must identify with the people. And this is why Jesus, in order to be our high priest, had to become a baby. You know, there are many mediators in the Old Testament. Uh, so think about the office of prophets. They brought God's word from God to the people. So Isaiah and Jeremiah and so forth. Or the kings, what did they do? Well, they, when they were submitting to God, they brought God's rule to bear on God's people. Think of King David or King Solomon or Josiah and others. But the priests in particular represented the people in coming before God's presence. So whether it was the Levitical branch of the priesthood or whether it was uh, characters like Melchizedek, who was a king priest of Salem, he had that kind of dual office. 
But there are also certain characters that kind of acted like kings and priests in some ways, like Moses, who, when Israel crafted that golden calf, remember this story, they craft the, the, the golden craft, and they, they bring this idol, and they, they put it there in place of God. And as God's wrath burned hot against them, Moses stood in the gap and mediated and prayed for mercy from God. And God was merciful. So friends, in all these different ways, and especially in the priestly role, we see God's big heart for us, don't we? He wants to make a way to bridge the gap, to be with us, to break down the walls between us and God. If you've ever wondered, does God really care about us? Just think about all the different ways in the Old Testament. We haven't gotten to the New Testament yet. In the Old Testament, all the different ways he reached down to his people through these mediators and offices. But here's the astonishing thing as we kind of fast forward to the New Testament. Listen to the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. So, so yeah, we've got all this rich kind of Jewish history and, 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 and the old covenant kind of means of mediation, but because there is only, according to Paul, one mediator, all of those other mediators kind of find their culmination and point to Jesus, who is the ultimate mediator. All of those other pictures in the Old Testament are just little pictures that are pointing to Christ. So when you read Exodus 32 through 34 about this golden calf, and then you see Moses standing in the gap for Israel, think about how Jesus does that in even a greater way for sinners from every nation, not just Israel. Notice in our passage the two adjectives for high priest, merciful and faithful, two special qualities of Jesus' priesthood. Mercy, of course, is more than just an emotion, right? So let's say you were driving and you saw someone in an accident on the road and they're lying by the side of the road with no assistant and you felt kind of that ache in your heart for the person, but for whatever reason, you chose not to act. And we would say you're not being merciful, right? To be merciful, you must act to alleviate another person's pain. This is Jesus, isn't it? How many times did he model mercy for us in the Gospels? When he had compassion on the hungry or the sick, or the grieving, and then he met their needs in tangible ways. So, so in being our merciful high priest, Jesus gathers up our needs to himself, and he does something about them. He has a huge heart for us, but it's a heart that springs into action. And his mercy is sensitized by the fact that he is one of us. He's experienced miseries like we have. In his humanity, he knows how we feel. Think about the good husband when his wife gives birth. He's certainly caring, he's compassionate, but how much more merciful would he be if he first had the experience of giving birth? If he was made like his wife in every way, you know, whether it's her body or hormones or obviously the experience of pain and the pain of childbirth, he would be so, so merciful, wouldn't he? Well, friends, because Jesus was made like us in every way, his mercy can be deep and profound towards us. Jesus' priestly mediation, notice, it's not only merciful, it says it's, it's faithful. How is Jesus' mediation faithful? 
Well, he faithfully lived, first of all, a righteous life. He obeyed as a human where no one else has obeyed. So think about how many times in just the past 48 hours, okay, you've been mildly irritated or made a snarky remark or entertained a hateful thought or exaggerated something for convenience or lusted after someone or withdrew your affection from someone. Listen, friends, Jesus never, not even once in his 33 years on earth, gave into anything resembling any of this. Not once, not kinda, not sorta, not ever, even close. His perfection is unfathomable. And that faithfulness, of course, led him to the cross. You know, Philippians chapter two, it's got this beautiful little reflection. It was probably an ancient hymn. And in that ancient hymn, it says that Jesus was obedient even unto death even unto death. He did everything necessary to become mankind's sin bearer. Nothing deterred him from going to the cross. So we would conclude there has never been such faithfulness as we see in Jesus's life and in his death. How this would have given this little church such assurance and comfort and confidence. We can have the same assurance today, friends. When the storms of life come, and they will, we can count on Jesus. His compassions never fail. And from the depth of his heart towards us, he will spring into action to meet our needs. He is our faithful and merciful mediator. So how does our high priest, how does Jesus meet our needs? What kind of work does he do on our behalf? That's what our next two points are going to be about. First, he propitiates, I'll explain that in a second, and then he also helps us in the present. So let's talk about this next point. In Jesus, we have a priestly propitiator. Before we get to explaining what that P word is, let me ask you this question. What is the fundamental problem with humanity? What would you say? Does people need more education? Is it the end of war and poverty? Maybe it's the wrong people who are in power. Maybe we just need to believe in ourselves more and kind of amp that up a little bit? No. The fundamental problem with humanity is that we have a righteousness deficit. We have a sin problem. That's our fundamental problem, which includes God's just wrath against us because of our sin. Listen, friends, a holy God cannot overlook sin. His holiness has certain demands that need to be met. Now, why am I emphasizing this? Because if you misdiagnose the problem, you will misunderstand the remedy. No good doctor would ever prescribe Tylenol for a malignant tumor or amputate your arm because you have pink eye. That's ridiculous, right? Unfortunately, this is precisely what the world does, and sometimes even the church does. If we make the main problem that we're trying to solve poverty or government overreach, or lack of self-esteem, or even abortion. And our solutions will involve money and politics and psychology and campaigning, et cetera, et cetera. It's easy to go there because these are things we can kind of control and influence ourselves, right? But if we truly believe that our greatest problem is that humanity has this righteousness deficit, and God's just wrath is against us as a result, well, then what is the solution? How do we get out of this pickle? If we are the problem, then we can't provide a solution, can we? Now look at what 2.17 says. 
Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God. Here it is, to make atonement for the sins of the people. To make atonement for the sins of the people. God sent Jesus to be our priestly propitiator. Now, that word there you see, if you're using the CSB, that word you see for atonement is literally propitiation. How many of you heard of that word before, propitiation? You know, all you Bible nerds. It's a theology word, sure. Here's what it means. To avert the wrath of God by the offering of a gift. To avert the wrath of God by the offering of of a gift. So it refers to the turning away of God's wrath as the just judgment of our sin. And so how does this apply with Jesus? Well, in other words, Jesus, as our priestly propitiator, makes the right sacrifice to take away God's just wrath against us. Okay, so what is that sacrifice? If you've got these little lambs and goats and pigeons that, you know, we sacrifice in the Old Testament system, maybe, you know, Jesus is going to create this really huge lamb for this very purpose, the sacrifice, right? Or maybe he's going to gather up all the pigeons and lambs and goats across all the world and put them on the biggest altar ever. Or or maybe he's going to gather up all of the evil presidents and rulers and put them on this altar, and that's going to be sufficient to avert God's wrath. Friends, what will be sufficient? What will be sufficient to absorb the wrath of God that we deserve? Only the Son of God. Only the Son of God who became a baby and lived a righteous life. You know, that God would make the sacrifice, okay, maybe that's not super surprising, kind of surprising, I guess, but that God would be himself the sacrifice? I don't know about you, but that's a pretty big shocker to me. So so, so Jesus needed to be a human, not only to be our high priest who offers sacrifices, but to be the sacrifice. Now, you might be thinking, I don't know whether you're thinking this, why couldn't God just forgive everybody? If he's all powerful and good, why did Jesus have to die? Well, friends, there is always a cost to pay. I heard this story uh, several years ago, a story about a father watching his boys in the living room. They're wrestling, and, you know, the mom comes in, and she's looking around. She sees the lamp in the corner, and she's like, okay. She warns all three of them, all three of them, hey, there's a lamp in the corner. Be careful. What happens, of course, the boys, they're wrestling, and they bump into the the table, and the lamp crashes and, and falls to the ground, and it breaks. Well, the dad's got some options. He could leave the lamp broken. He can make his boys pay for a new lamp, or he can pay for it himself. But friends, every option has a cost, doesn't it? There's a cost to losing the lamp, to not fixing it. There's a cost to fixing the lamp as well. Who's going to pay? Someone has to pay the cost for our sins. In Exodus chapter 12, we are introduced to the first payment, the first sacrifice, as it were. It was made during the first Passover events. So this is when God is threatening uh, Egypt with the final plague of taking out the firstborn. And so God instructs Israel to choose a perfect, spotless, unblemished lamb at the prime of its life, whose blood can be put on the doorposts and lintels of their homes, so that 
when God's judgment comes onto Egypt and he sees the blood on the, the doorposts and lintels, he will pass over them. Friends, what do we have with Jesus if we see him on the cross? We have a perfect, spotless, unblemished lamb at the prime of his life, our perfect substitute. And when we apply the blood of this lamb to the doorposts and lintels of our hearts, God's judgment will pass over us. I want you to listen to how the New Testament characters speak of Jesus in this manner. When John the Baptist first saw Jesus, years before he even went to the cross, he exclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How did the Apostle Peter think of salvation? Listen, it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And when the Apostle John had a vision of the last days in the book of Revelation, this is what was read earlier, when he got a sneak peek into heaven and all that was going on here, there, what did he see? Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. And what did John hear? He heard a song. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Friends, is this not our song today? We will be singing about Jesus, our slain lamb. Not just Jesus in a manger, not just Jesus in his life. And, and all these things are really important. And they, of course, lead to, lead to his death on the cross. But we will be singing about Jesus, our slain lamb, for trillions of years into the future. This is our song. Why is this our song? Because, now hear me, because at the cross, not only is something absorbed for us, God's judgment, but something is gloriously given to us. He gets our sin, we get his righteousness. It's not our righteousness, it's an alien righteousness, it's his righteousness, and he provides us with that righteousness. It's kind of a new resume or a new record. Philip Hughes has said it this way, quote, Our hell he made his, that his heaven might be ours, close quote. So, so imagine for a moment if someone spectacular, you know, gives you his resume, you know, all the, all the, the, the titles and the experience and all the education and multiple doctorate degrees, and it's like, hey, you can, you can go stand confident on this resume and you can go apply for jobs. That'd be really cool, right? It'd also be cheating, but it would be cool. But in this case with Jesus, it's not cheating. It's mercy. In a spiritual manner, Christ shares his resume with us. And how does it come to us? How do we receive this atonement? How do we gain Christ's righteousness? How do we get his resume? It's through faith and repentance. Faith in this Christ, repenting of your sins. Now, how might this have landed on this little first century church. You know, it's the storm of Roman persecution and pressure to capitulate to Judaism. That was kind of coming on them. In their own flesh, they were tempted to go back to the works-based Jewish religion. Do this, check this box, show up to church, and you can avoid persecution. Get back on the religious treadmill and God will accept you. 
That's really tempting, isn't it? I mean, it sounds good to us. But I tell you what, Hebrews 2 verse 17 is a powerful tonic for weary, worn-out, performance-oriented Christians, isn't it? Listen, friends, aren't you tired of needing to perform? Aren't you tired? Isn't it just exhausting, that propensity that we have in each of our souls to achieve, to put forth a good product? Aren't you tired of running on the treadmill of life and embracing the rat race, which is sometimes life? It's exhausting. If we try to derive our confidence in life from our personal performance, we will despair. It's a house of cards. But if you are a Christian, you don't have to perform anymore because Christ has performed for you. If we stand firmly on the atonement and the righteousness of Christ, our confidence will soar. Friends, this is why Jesus took on flesh and became a baby. This is why he came, to give us the right kind of sacrifice so that we can have the right kind of confidence. All right, here's the third point. What sort of priest is Jesus? Finally, in Jesus, we have a priestly helper. So yes, humanity's greatest problem is sin. As we think about sin, it's really a twofold problem. The first problem is our guilt. We are condemned by our sin. The second problem is pollution. We are corrupted by our sin. So we're not only condemned by our sin, but we are corrupted by our sin. The first problem is solved in what we see in verse 17, the work of atonement, the work of propitiation. What about the second problem? That's where verse 18 comes in. If Jesus had not taken on flesh, he would not be the right kind of sacrifice. But we can also say if Jesus had not taken on flesh, he would not offer the right help that we need today. Verse 17 talks about Jesus' past priestly work for sinners. Verse 18 talks about Jesus' present priestly work for sinners. You know, one of my favorite hymns is uh, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. I hope you hear that uh, great hymn. And it summarizes what we're talking about here really well. Quote, he breaks the power of canceled sin. Isn't that great? He breaks the power of canceled sin. It's really, I mean, there's a whole worldview just packed into that line. Sin has been canceled for the Christian. That's what we just talked about in verse 17. But after that, after that, slowly, meticulously, step by step, Jesus, our priestly helper, begins to break the power of sin in our actual lives. You see? That's what verse 18 is all about. So let's kind of look at this verse a little bit uh, more closely. Verse 18 says, For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. So suffering and temptation are the things that mark Jesus's human experience. He experienced the full gamut of humanity. It's not like Jesus became a human, and then between his birth and death, he kind of hid away somewhere, you know, just got a, got a castle or something, and he lived kind of this solitary life of protection. That's not what he did. He experienced the fullness of humanity. So we can say that in Jesus's humanity, he experienced the very worst of what you and I experience. You know, nobody ever looked at Jesus's life and said, you know, kind of wish I had that life. He had a difficult 33 years. He experienced everything we experience, and that includes temptation. Think with me of all the ways Jesus was tempted. 
You know, he was tempted with personal glory. The, the devil told him early in his life, uh, adult life, the devil told him, hey, throw yourself off this temple and the angels will lift you up. He was tempted with wealth and power. Uh, the devil again said, I'll give you the nations, Jesus, if you just bow down to me. He was tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane to avoid the cross. You know, he prays to his father, take this cup from me. But he finally would say, but not my will, but yours. So Jesus was tempted in every way because he was human in every way. But he never gave in to any temptation. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't feel temptation. It actually means he felt it even more. Now, I want you to imagine with me, and for some of you, this, this is going to be really difficult to imagine, but that's okay. Just imagine with me if I maxed out on the weightlifting bench at 200 pounds, okay? So that's just as much weight that I can kind of throw up. That's my max, okay? Uh, I've never tried 225 or 250 or 300, um, just, just 200, 200 pounds. I've never felt the strength of 250 pounds. I've only experienced the strength of 200 pounds, okay? Well, similarly, we've never felt the strength of more temptation because we give into it. If we didn't give into temptation, it would build and grow and mount. So think then about Jesus's life. Can you imagine going through life with all those temptations hanging over your head with no reprieve, never giving in once? Jesus understands temptation more than any of us because he has withstood all of it, all of it. And this is why Jesus became a baby, right, and took on the fullness of humanity so he can help us in our fight. And how does Jesus help us today to break the power of canceled sin? Let me give you three quick applications, okay? How does Jesus help us break the power of canceled sin? First of all, as our high priest, he sympathizes with us. Friends, have you ever felt lonely? Jesus can relate. He is the man of sorrows, according to Isaiah 53. He was rejected and put to death by his own people. Have you ever felt grief over losing someone? I know several of you in this room are feeling that acutely right now. Jesus can relate. He wept at the death of his best friend, Lazarus, John chapter 11. Have you ever been misrepresented? Jesus can relate. He was betrayed by a friend. He was falsely accused by the priests. He was mocked by the soldiers. Have you ever had money problems? Jesus was poor and had nowhere to lay his head, according to Matthew chapter 8. Have you ever felt misunderstood by a family member? Listen, Jesus' own family thought he was crazy. Okay, Mark chapter 3, verse 21. Have you ever been really, really stressed? Jesus was so stressed in the Garden of Eden, no, Garden of Gethsemane, that he sweat drops of blood. Luke chapter 22. Listen, friends, no one could ever go to Jesus and say, you don't get me. You don't understand my life. No, Jesus gets us more than we realize. So that's the first thing, he sympathizes with us. Secondly, he intercedes for us. He intercedes for us. Listen to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. It says, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. Think about this massive reality, friends. Jesus right now, if you're a Christian, Jesus right now, is seated in power and glory at God's right hand, and one of the things he is doing is praying for you. 
He's praying for Faith Church. He's praying for your family. Jesus is praying for you in such a way that's going to bring about your perseverance. The word intercede here is more than just prayer. It's a legal word that means Jesus argues for you in the throne room. He doesn't make excuses for you. He advocates for you. He's saying about you, you know, it's, it's okay. I, I died for her. Let's give her some more strength for today. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is never your accuser. He's only your defender. He's not waiting for you to slip up. He's not getting ready to pounce on you. In every situation, at every turn, right now in the throne room, he is your advocate. He is helping you to keep going. So he sympathizes with us. He intercedes for us. And then finally, he nourishes us as our priest. You know, it's not just a big heart that he has for us. It's not just lots of prayers that he offers us. Those things are so good. They're so helpful, obviously. But there is an actionable help that he offers us as well. As we are united to Christ, Jesus actually gives us life day to day. It's his life, his joy, his endurance, his faithfulness that can be imparted to us each day as we abide in him and stay connected to him. He imparts to us his life in the very place where there's deadness and sin and weakness. And so, of course, it's our job to stay connected to him each day, connected to our high priest. There is so much help available. The question is, will we avail ourselves of it? I'm convinced that much of the Christian's discouragement is not due to hard circumstances, but due to not grabbing a hold of the life Christ offers us each day. You see, we, we can really have this sweet fellowship with Jesus, a, a, a real deep communion with Christ. You can experience it. I can experience that. You know, my kids will never know how much my life and, and Jenny's, our lives are intertwined with theirs and how that intertwining leads me to love them with a whole heart, with a full heart. So it is with Jesus and God's children. His life is so intertwined with ours. And he has this deep, intense affection for God's children. Just as a parent has for a child, his love smothers and covers you. If you're a Christian, it smothers and covers you at every turn. So it shouldn't surprise us then that, that when we are weak and needy and battling sin, he will show up with strength and life and mercy. Think of how much this must have boosted the confidence of this little church. They needed to know just how glorious and sufficient and helpful Jesus really is for them. If Jesus hadn't taken on flesh, this is what the author of Hebrews is saying, if Jesus hadn't taken on flesh, he would have been an insufficient mediator. He would have been an insufficient propitiator. He would have been an insufficient helper in the now. And this is why we celebrate Christmas, because he is all of those things, right? He's, he's sufficient for all of those things. We celebrate Christmas to, to give God yet another standing ovation right? Because Jesus took on flesh and withstood temptation and offered himself up as the sacrifice and ascended to God's right hand and continues even to this day to be our priestly helper and mediator and encourager and advocate. Praise God that we can put our full confidence in this Jesus. Amen? You probably know that the fish was a great symbol in the early Christian church, the ichthus, seen that around maybe on the back of people's cars in the 21st century. 
It's interesting that the early church drew many symbols from the sea to express their faith. The ichthus was one. Do you know of another one? Any guesses? The anchor. The anchor. And the inspiration for this came from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, which again describes Jesus as our high priest. Listen carefully. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. You know, maybe some artist in this little church who received this teaching and after reading Hebrews and then thinking about being Jesus being our high priest, maybe he was encouraged by it and, and he starts to sketch out a, a little anchor in his home and that anchor gets passed around to the, 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 the church. And over time, this anchor will become a powerful symbol it's found in paintings and, and, and in ancient Christian books and was engraved in the design of Christian coffins. It would remind Christians year after year that we have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul in Jesus. So friends, let me ask you the question that we started with. Where will you put your confidence? Where will you put your confidence? In this new year, Will it be in Jesus, the anchor of our souls, or will it be in something else? The world, the devil, our flesh entice us and tempt us. The storm around us rages on and, you know, it kind of tosses and turns the, the boat that is the church. But we have something far more sure. We have something far more steady with the anchor that is Jesus. For he alone is our perfect priestly mediator, propitiator, and help. Amen. Let's take a moment now of silence to ponder this passage.